Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word this morning to two texts. The first text uh, is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, where we will read verses 40 through 45. When you find that, stick your finger there, or whatever you do with an electronic device, and uh, then turn with me back to Leviticus chapter 13. Uh, we are going to read a few verses from there. For time's sake, we're not going to read as much as I had wanted, uh, but I think we'll read enough for you to understand the context. Once you have your uh, scripture there open to Leviticus 13, make sure you blow the dust away so that you can see the words as we read them together. When a man is afflicted with a leprous disease... He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall look. And if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there is raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body. And the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not shut him up, for he is unclean. Down to verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And now over to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, uh, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we need this vision of Christ this morning. Not only for the consolation of our own hearts and minds, but so that we might see who the Jesus is that is residing in each and every one of us. Show us the Christ that has united himself to us. Show us the Christ that by his spirit is being formed within us and expressing himself through us in this world. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think from the last couple of months, it's, it's not difficult to try to picture what would it like, what would it be like to feel ostracized? What would it feel like to be cut off from people? What would it feel like to, to feel that you're disconnected? As I have been reading, I have seen different people expressing different emotions because of this separation that has come because of the importance of practicing social distancing. As they have become disconnected from people, they have begun to struggle with, are they valued? Am I liked? 
I, I try to call someone and they don't answer. Or I try to talk on the phone and they don't stay on with me very long. People expressing feelings that even apart from the social distancing, they now feel like people are avoiding them or ignoring them. They are wrestling with feelings of powerlessness, wrestling with feeling like they don't have a voice as decisions continue to be made for them. Can they work? Can they go see their loved ones? Can they do this? Can they do that? And the response that I have seen is people growing more and more flustered and frustrated. Temperatures are rising. Those internal temperatures of emotions. And the result, if you're dumb enough to be like me and read about these things online to see what people are saying, is that people are expressing more and more frustration with things, more and more anger with things. They are getting fed up with what they feel to be arbitrary and unnecessary restrictions and starting to act out. And many, even within Reformed Christianity, had discussions about, is this a time for civil disobedience? Is this a time for us to throw off the suggested rules? Is this a time for us not to follow what the government is telling us on how to respond to the coronavirus and how we should live and what we should do? Churches have been wrestling for months of, well, just because the government says we can't meet together, that doesn't mean we can't meet together because God tells us we're supposed to. And we're supposed to be faithful. We are not to give up the meeting together, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And so we must keep meeting together regardless of this governmental oppression. But something that I haven't seen expressed something that doesn't seem to be felt right now, even among Christians that have been expressing frustration and anger and desires to throw off current restraints, is I haven't heard one Reformed Christian or conservative Christian say that they feel hunted. I haven't heard one say that they feel like they are being targeted and extinguished. In December of 2005, Christy, um, I'm sorry, that's supposed to be 2002. Christy and I were in Louisville, Kentucky. I was a student at Southern Seminary. There had been a rash of clashes between the police um, and the black community in Louisville. The final clash was when James E. Taylor was shot at least 12 times in his apartment while having his hands handcuffed behind his back. Officers claimed self-defense because James had pulled out a box cutter that was in his back pocket. But remember, his hands were handcuffed behind him and that's how he got access to the back pocket. But they said that he was lunging and swinging. Remind you with his hands cuffed behind his back. There apparently was a couple of of attempts to get him to settle down. But finally, one of the officers um, drew his weapon and shot the man 12 times. You can imagine the outrage. You can imagine the outrage when the officers were acquitted of all charges. 
My response, I am ashamed to say, was political and one of complete lack of understanding. I remember having conversations with Christy, other students, expressing why I didn't understand. He was a threat. He was a threat not only to the police officers, but the reason the officers had gone into the apartment is because they were going to a different apartment on a routine something, and there were cries for help from within James Taylor's apartment. He was drunk, he was high on crack, and he was threatening his friends who were in the room with him, and they were screaming for help. He hadn't done anything yet, but they were screaming for help, and so these two officers in plain clothes burst into the apartment, as they rightly should have, but things spiraled out of control. And so from my perspective, well, he was a threat. They, those police officers, they, they saved those people in that room more than likely. I didn't understand why there was such outrage I didn't understand why there were African-American leaders calling it a modern-day lynching. I didn't understand the frustrations and the tears of terror. He was a threat. He was dealt with. People were protected. The result of all this, you can imagine, are, were very... Uh, there were protests. Some of them did get violent. None of them, that I recall, became riots. But the anger and the frustration was coming out, and I didn't get it. In fact, as things continued to unfold and get progressively worse, the more dismissive I became. The more that there was language used of modern day lynching, the more dismissive I became of the situation. I didn't get it. And I, as a seminary student engaged in ethics conversations and philosophy conversations and government conversations and all these different things. And from every angle that I could see and the people who were mirrors of me were seeing was that philosophically and ethically and everything you can think of in terms of guidelines, procedures, everything, it was done according to the letter of the law and therefore, this isn't that big of a deal. During that time, for fun, I had decided that I was going to reread To Kill a Mockingbird. It was a story that I had read years before that I had enjoyed. I was going through um, a period where I was spending a lot of time reading literature and poetry because I had been told if you want to be a good preacher, you need to be well-versed in literature and poetry. And so I decided to read this book that I enjoyed. And as I read it this second time, I read it within a completely new context. As I read it within the context of all of this, un all of this racial tension and concern about the um, using too strong a force, regardless of color. And as I read To Kill a Mockingbird, I came across that famous, that famous quote of Atticus Finch. If you can learn a simple trick, Scout, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. Now this is just a different version of that phrase that you and I know very well. If you want to understand someone, you need to walk a mile. Yeah, see, all of y'all can say it as soon as I start it. 
walk a mile in his shoes. But why did she choose to express it as walk around in his skin? Well, because the problem that Scout had had with her teacher that day and not understanding why her teacher just didn't understand the Makeham's ways and why did she have to do something to embarrass them, was setting the reader up for what would come later in the book as a black man would be falsely accused of rape by a white woman. If you want to understand someone, you have to walk around in his skin. And it was at this time now, it was in the early months of 2003, that for me, I started to realize that ministry had to involve not simply knowing the right theology, having the right preaching techniques, which I still don't have, knowing how to evangelize or do apologetics or discuss ethics, right? There had to be something more to that than ministry. About that time, I also was reading things um, on civil rights and the civil rights movement. I didn't remember it at the time, but I have been reminded of it this week. A quote from Martin Luther King, Jr. As I was trying to implement what Atticus said of walking around in someone else's skin, it became the lens through which I was trying to understand the protests and the, the violence that was attending them, even though it did not escalate to the things that you and I have seen this past week. But I was trying to understand it as one walking around in their skin. And Martin Luther King, not justifying, not saying it's okay, but making a descriptive statement said, Riots don't develop out of thin air. They don't just happen. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as, as vigorously as we condemn, by, by, uh, condemn riots. He was not pro-riots. He agreed with condemning riots. He was also trying to help people understand that there were other things that also needed to be as vigorously condemned. What is it, he says, what are these conditions? What has led to this kind of situation? He said it's that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And he said, as long as these winters of delay continue, meaning a lack of action, that these conditions were going to keep being cycled over and over and over. What we saw happen in Louisville, by the way, because of all of this, not only that had happened, but because of the protests, what that did was it forced local government in Louisville to consider that, you know what, we need to start providing our police officers um, um, non-lethal options. If we're going to help our police officers maintain order, to protect the public and to protect themselves. There is a different option, there has to be options between telling someone to stop and shooting them. There has to be something in between. And as a result of this, what happened in the city of Louisville is that the police, it became standard practice to um, distribute tasers to the police officers. Riots don't develop out of thin air. Certain conditions exist in our society. 
They are a voice that says we need action. Action resulted. But here's my point this morning. As I continued from that point for the last 17 years to see one tragedy after another, what I began to ask myself is, as helpful as Atticus Finch's words are, is there something more specifically Christian for me to utilize in knowing how to respond to these types of situations. And so years ago, as I was doing a study in the Gospel of Mark, and I came here to the end of Mark chapter 1, I saw something in Christ's response to a leper that leapt out at me in a way that never had before. What you find here at the end of Mark chapter 1 is the conclusion of an extremely powerful presentation of Jesus Christ and the beginning of his ministry in this world. From the opening verses, Jesus is presented as the true son of God that has left heaven and has sojourned to earth and has become a pilgrim who is part of the exile of his people. And the presentation of Jesus from the opening verses of Mark to the last verses of, of Mark is that Jesus, in entering into the wilderness and desolate places with his sinful people, he takes them through that wilderness, leading Jesus to go through that ultimate wilderness, not only of a sinful world, but the condemnation of our sin and the experience of death. And through his resurrection, he passes through the wilderness and he becomes, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, this one that is blazing the trail where all of us as his people are coming behind him as we are being led by our God who has come into our wilderness to lead us through the wilderness and to get us out of the wilderness into our promised home. Now, we've been talking about these themes from 1 Peter. These themes are here in description of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus, who is described as the God who has come in fulfillment of prophecy to meet his people in the wilderness, to take them through it, and to get them out of it, what you have is Jesus, who is God, who comes in, and as he breaks into history, the kingdom of God breaks with him, and there is power... And there is presence in the king as he arrives. And this power and this presence is, is put on display immediately within this ministry as you see Jesus exercising dominion over Satan and the, and the dark uh, forces of this world, preaching with authority that is changing uh, men and women's hearts as he is exercising miracles as the one who is empowered through the Spirit, with the, with the realities of the heavenly places, as he is able to contradict natural law because of his power and because of his presence. And what we do is we get to the end of Mark chapter 1, and what we find is Jesus doing this for someone that is insignificant, on the edges, he is someone who is the walking dead. Now for you and I, as we read from Mark 1 verses 40 through 45, it was very easy, I bet, for us to pass over verse 40. A leper comes, right? A leper comes says to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. 
Okay. These are words that are setting things up. All right, now let's get to the action, right? For the first century reader of the Gospel of Mark, this is the action. They would have read this, and they would have been freaked out. I think that's what it says in the Greek, freaked out. We read leper, and we think, oh, here's someone that has a disease. Oh, they're unclean. What the leper does is he completely contradicts what the law said he was supposed to do, what society said he was supposed to do, what the rabbinic literature said he was supposed to do. And he broke every one of those conventions and threatens the life and cleanliness of Jesus Christ. When we read verse 40, that's what we're reading. Here is a person that is in desperation. And he contradicts law and comes to the one because he is at the end of his rope and he believes that Jesus can do something about his problem. The leper, as we read just a little bit about from Leviticus 13, there was stages in which the disease or skin diseases would be examined by the priest. But they had to go through this process of examining someone with a skin rash because there were some skin issues that were just rashes, okay, not a big deal. And so the priest would look at it. They'd make an assessment. Sometimes if it was a little questionable, they would say, okay, you need to be over here for seven days uh, and then come back, show us again, and we'll look at it again. As we read in 9 through 11, if someone comes to the priest and and their skin issue is not simply a rash, but it is actual leprosy, They didn't say, well, go over here for seven days and then come back and see us. What they did was they put them out of the camp. They had to go live in the wilderness. Why? Well, because at the time of the giving of the law, the tabernacle, as it was the presence of God on earth, was a place of holiness, complete, 100% holiness because of his presence. And one of the jobs that the Levites and the priests had was to make sure that contamination did not come into the tabernacle. And so what they had to do was they had a job of defending God from the uncleanness of people who were unclean, And they had the job of protecting people from the holiness of God. And so when someone at this time had leprosy, they had to go and live outside the camp in the wilderness because there was no cure. And there was no possibility for them to become clean. By clean here, clean and unclean, we don't mean sinful, not sinful. What we mean is ritually, symbolically, Clean versus unclean. And because the leper was unclean, he could not live any longer with his family. Because of the leper, he could not any longer live within society. Because he was a leper, he could no longer remain in his marriage. Because he was a leper, he could not go to tabernacle. Do you see what's happening This is social distancing on steroids because there is no end. And we are told in verses 45 and 46 that what they are supposed to do is they are supposed to dress in a way that lets everyone know that they are a leper. And by the way, the the description of how they dress, it's the same description of how someone was to dress because of mourning and death. They were walking dead in terms of their appearance. 
but not only because of their appearance, but as if they did come near people, if they were coming close to that range of social distancing, they didn't just say, oh, let's stay back. They had to come in going, unclean, unclean. In case my appearance doesn't already draw uh, enough attraction to the fact that I am isolated and not part of society, I have to scream it out so that everyone knows. And this was to protect people who were ritually clean. Because if the leper had come near them, they would have had to go through this whole rigorous process at the temple to regain the status of clean. But even more than that, their life was threatened because they could die if the, the disease was transmitted. When the leper comes to Jesus here in Mark 1, he is coming as one who is completely isolated he is alone. He has no community. He is cut off. He lives in the wilderness. And he lives in the constant awareness that he is unsafe, that he is unwanted. What's interesting is that a leper could still go um, not to the tabernacle, but they could go to the, the local congregations. But even if they went there, they had to sit in a completely different section where there was this screened wall between them and the other worshipers. So even in their worship, they were cut off. And they would hear the word of God read. They would hear the law of God read. Reminded over and over and over of their status of being unclean. But also with the promise that God, when he would establish the new covenant, through the Spirit and through the Messiah, would send one who would reverse all of these things for God's people. That the curse of sin would be reversed, the status of unclean could become the status of clean, and that the only hope that a leper had was in the coming of this Messiah when he sees Jesus, knowing what Jesus is claiming about himself, he is latching hold of those old covenant promises, and he sees what he believes to be God's fulfillment of those promises, and so he runs, and he puts himself, he invades Jesus' space, threatens Jesus. He becomes a threat to Jesus because he is that hopeless while at the same time, he, is, he longs that much to be restored. So that's, that's context. What does Jesus do? Does he jump back? Oh, you don't have a mask on. Does he jump back? Does he say, oh, You've got to stay away from me. You're unclean. Does he uphold the requirement? No. What does the text tell us that he does? And don't, don't jump. Don't jump right to the healing. Because what Jesus does, his initial reaction, is not action it is emotion. And the text tells us that Jesus moved with pity. There is no good English translation of this Greek term. It is a term in which 
Uh, the emotion that Jesus is experiencing is described as go as coming from the depths of his bowels. This is not, oh, poor guy. This is an emotional, gut-wrenching response to what he sees in this man ravaged by this skin disease and even more so ravaged by the the social, the communal, the economic, the spiritual effects of that disease. And what Jesus does is he doesn't just, oh, poor guy. He is moved from the depths of his bowels in anger about the situation. He sees this one ravaged by sin and he is angered by the situation that this man finds himself in. This is the same term, by the way, that's used in other places in the gospel where Jesus is described as looking upon the crowds where he says, I, I long to gather you to myself, but you know you, you won't be gathered. And he says that he looks on them with compassion. It's the same word. This is not, this is not simply a philosophical or an ethical or, or a theological response to this man's problem. It is a deep-seated emotional response that is the result of what this man is experiencing. So the first thing that Jesus does is that he experiences the same emotion that a leper would experience day after day after day after day. Christ's compassion is a compassion that is experienced from within as Atticus would say, someone's skin. But then next, and look what he does. He doesn't say, okay, well, be healed. He does say that, right? But what does he do before he says it? He touches the leper. Jesus touches the leper. He doesn't just speak the healing. He gives this man something that he has not experienced for we don't know how long. And that is human connection and that is human touch. Entering into his emotional perspective Overcoming the barriers through touching, he then says, be healed. That's what Christ's compassion is. It is a sense of his identity. It is a sense of his purpose. He is one who is clean. He is the God-man. He is holy. And he, in his holiness, can overcome the uncleanness of this man. And so he doesn't back away. He stays there. He enters into that man's condition and even touches him. That's the compassion. And notice the result. What happens because Jesus does this? The man who has been separated from society, separated from people, Jesus says, now look, what you need to do is go present yourself to the priest, go through the law, go through the process of getting declared clean, right? That's not what he does. What does he do? He is so stoked to be clean, he immediately just starts running into the crowd. He immediately takes up his place in the community. He immediately goes amongst the people to say, look what has happened to me. Look what Jesus has done for me. And he is reunited. He is together. He is with people. He is part 
of them. He had been on the outside, excluded, unwanted, and now he is received within the community. But what happens to Jesus? The text tells us Jesus had to then go out into the wilderness places. Do you see what's going on here? Within this little interaction between Jesus and a leper is the fullness of God's plan of salvation being unfolded for us in that he would send us a Messiah that would come not just uh, unemotively, but would come because of the passion that he had for his people and the anger that he was experiencing because of the way sin was ravaging his people. And he would come and he would reverse the curse of sin not by remaining separate, not by staying at a distance, not by allowing himself not to be touched or affected, but by getting right into the middle of it, touching this man and, and cleansing him by him transferring his status of clean and taking on this other man's status of unclean. This is Christ's compassion. This is our hope of salvation. Christ has come to us. He has taken our place. He has given us his place. And Jesus is described here then as being outside the camp, in the wilderness, while someone who should be outside the camp is restored to community. Jesus, literally, through, through his incarnation, has taken upon himself our skin. And Jesus, in his compassion, has reversed the curse, has given us his status he took on our status for a time until he was resurrected from the dead. Jesus in his ministry, so Jesus in his, in his incarnation, Jesus in his, in, in his work of salvation, Jesus in his ministry, literally here, touches the skin of a leper in a sense, taking on the status of that skin and then literally walks around outside the camp in the status of that skin. You seen the picture here? What does this have to do then with how we might interact with tragedies like I described of James Taylor? tragedies like we saw unfold this week with Greg, Greg Floyd. Have we taken the time to try to walk around in the skin of those who, whether it's true or not, and I don't want to get into debates, we can talk privately, I love that. Whether it's true or not, there is a group of people that includes our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. There's a segment of this society that you and I have a shared life with who feel that because of the color of their skin, that they are unwanted, that they do not have a place, and that they are even being hunted and exterminated. Once again, don't get caught up right now on, is this just a media ploy? Is just, is just, just an inaccurate narrative? Let's remember what our brothers and sisters feel. And can we try to exercise the compassion of Christ can we allow 
Christ to exercise his compassion in us and through us and try to understand something that you and I don't experience. And can we, like Martin Luther King Jr. said, can we vigorously condemn riots? Can we vigorously condemn further breaking of law? Can we further condemn people hurting people? Can we further condemn these things and not justify them at all? But can we also equally try to understand the emotion and the angst, the frustration and the fear that would lead someone to act that way? And can we become just as angered in the depths of our bowels in what our brothers and sisters say that they experience, even if we don't fully get it? Can we enter into their skin and do so to show the compassion of Jesus Christ? And can we as a church in exercising, exercising that compassion, can we continue the ministry of Jesus Christ, which is a reconciling ministry that comes by way of giving up power for someone who has none? Or let me put it a different way. Can we take up the cross? And follow him. Let's pray. Father, we have seen so much sin this week. We have been exposed to the pornography of death displayed in a 10-minute video over and over and over again. And we have watched people who have built from the ground up businesses who have seen them torn down and ripped to shreds We have seen people get hurt in rioting. There have been people who have been shot in the rioting. There is anger. There is frustration. There or accusations flying around between different groups. There has been stagnation, which has further escalated matters. Oh Lord, help us with the hope of Christ to cry out those words of Psalm 13, how long? Oh, Lord. But help us to cry those words as those who are embracing the compassion of Jesus Christ for ourselves. That we would always remember that because of our sin, we deserved to be cut off from you and your people. That because of our sin, we deserved to be cut off from the community of faith. Because of our sin, we, we deserved to be alienated and to be the objects of your wrath. And yet you, in your compassion, you gave us your son. Oh, Lord, help us never to take that compassion for granted 
and to preach that compassion to ourselves day after day after day so that we would long, that we would grow in our understanding and our experience of your compassion on us so that then we could grow and mature in being conduits of that compassion to people here on earth. Lord, fill us with your compassion and help us to experience the joy of your compassion and help us to become so, so filled with that joy that we would joyfully, as the writer of Hebrews says, we would accept the plundering of our goods so that we can manifest that compassion to those who need it. Lord, there is such a need for compassion. Please, Lord, through the mediation of Christ, please take that prayer that Gary prayed earlier and answer that prayer for your people and answer that prayer for this nation. Lord, I don't remember all that he said, but I remember the words peace, and I remember the words perspective. Lord, may our perspective be that of the compassionate Christ, and may the peace that we long to see be a peace that we are willing to be agents of, not simply passively waiting for it to come about. Lord, accomplish your purposes in us, so that you can accomplish your purposes through us. Lord, help us to be a people of hope and guide us every step of the way through our earthly pilgrimage. As you do, protect us and lead us in this world and bring us to that ultimate world to come in which our citizenship resides. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.